Welcome to Straight from the Author, a podcast that gives you a front row seat as leading authors discuss their books at a Warren Public Library. Hi, everybody. Hi. Thank you for being here. My name is Amy. I'm a branch librarian here. Welcome, and thank you for being here. Let's give it up for Diana. Thank you. I was born and raised in Southwest Michigan and have been researching lighthouses in the state of Michigan since the late 1990s and uh, primarily have been focusing for many years on two different tracks. One is on female lighthouse keepers and one is on haunted lighthouses. And in 2019, I actually wrote a book called Michigan's Haunted Lighthouses. Uh, and as a sequel to that, the History Press uh, reached out and asked me what else I had. And I said, well, you know, I have this love of lighthouses and I have a love of true crime. What if I take these stories together and find true crime stories that happen at lighthouses? They're historic. They're a little bit dark, and and I and they were instantly hooked. They said, you know what, we have this this new murder and mayhem series, and we know lighthouse books sell really well, and the murder and mayhem series does really well. So if we put a book together that focuses on both, it's sure to be a great book. And it actually was number one on Amazon in the new release category uh, within the first week that it came out. I haven't checked recently to see where it's at, but at one point, uh, both books this spring were in the top 10 in their category. So it's pretty exciting. So this book uh, does cover a bigger geographical area. Uh, it covers the entire Great Lakes region. And I did a lot of the research for this um, during, obviously, the lockdown, which made it a little little interesting because I couldn't actually go to libraries or to lighthouses or historical societies to do research because everybody was closed. And when I tried to email off to historical groups or libraries or the city or township buildings for information, of course, everybody was working from home. So nobody could get information for me that way. So it became a real big challenge. And I found that uh, in addition to using newspapers.com and ancestry.com, find a grave, which is, not, is another website. I was re reaching out to historical groups on Facebook and finding that they were a wealth of information because they knew a lot more about these areas, particularly in Canada that I couldn't go to. Um, and they were really helpful in providing uh, the information to me. And while the stories in Michigan's Haunted Lighthouses, I've been telling those for 25 years. I know them inside and out. Um, this one was actually, I think, a little bit more enjoyable or informative to me to research because many of the lights, many of the regions were places I had never heard of. Um, these were islands in Canada that I didn't even know existed. And so I personally learned a lot more doing the research for this book uh, than the first one. So I'm going to walk you through the book tonight. It has, just like the first book, 13 chapters, because if you're talking about dark and haunted and death-related things, 13 seems to be the most notable. So there are 12 individual lighthouses uh, in this, and then there's a compilation chapter, which has little snippets of, of other stories as well. So we're going to try and travel geographically, and uh, I'm excited to start this with Gibraltar Point Lighthouse in Toronto. In fact, I was at this lighthouse about two weeks ago. We uh, took an East Coast trip. It was a dark trip. We visited things like the um, the Lizzie Borden bed and breakfast and Edgar Allan Poe's grave and the Salem witch trial area. 
Um, and then we came back through uh, Canada and we stopped off in Toronto and made our way out. You take a ferry out to Toronto Island and the lighthouse here was built in a, in the early 1800s. In fact, it was one of the first lighthouses to be built here um, on Lake Ontario. And it is the oldest standing structure in Toronto, dating back so early. Um, you know, so it predates things like the War of 1812. Now on the mainland, right across uh, from the island was Fort York. It was a military outpost and it played a significant uh, part in the history of one of the early, or actually the earliest keeper at this lighthouse. So the lighthouse, when it was completed, was staffed and uh, ran by a man by the name of J.P. Rademuller. What a name. He was a German man. Uh, this is a letter that he actually wrote uh, in the early 1900s, in, um, in 1909. He was born in the late 1700s in Germany, and most of his life he spent working for royalty in England. He was a porter, an assistant to them. So he would arrange all of their travel plans, would arrange all of the parties at the house. When they would travel, he would be in charge of packing all of the trunks and getting those trunks into a carriage down to the boat and then onto the boat to take the this, the ride across the ocean. And then he would be in charge of the family and the house when they would visit. And so the people he was working with working for, they actually spent a lot of time vacationing or traveling to Canada, to North Canada, as it was called. And so he would come over with them. And as he got more familiar with this area in North America, he found that he really liked this liked North Canada. He liked the the naturalness of it. He liked the location along the um there where he came in was uh, along um the ocean. And he had a really good relationship with his boss and they said to him, you know, if you ever want to leave and go live in Canada, let us know. We will write letters of recommendation for you. We'll help you find employment. We'll help you find a house. And so he banked on this and he thought, you know what? I finally told him after a certain number of years that he wanted to do this. He wanted to get established and have a home and build and get married, have a family. And so he reached out to the to the duke that he was working for and the duke said, "Yes, get everything set up. I'll meet you down at the dock with your letter and your papers and then you can be on your way to Canada." Well, JP got down to the dock and the guy never showed up with his letter. So this is actually JP's pitch letter or his resume that he hand wrote and he sent it off and he would deliver it to the people that he was, he had the names, so he had to track down the people. He ends up actually making some good connections in North Canada, but the fact that this letter is over 200 years old and it's in the Canadian archives, um, it was really just fascinating to find. So he ends up getting uh, a few jobs in Canada. He starts um, as a teacher. He's working in this German community there, um, and he finally gets hired in as the very first lighthouse keeper at the uh, at the Gibraltar Lighthouse, even though he really had no experience. And in fact, many of our light, early lighthouse keepers really didn't have experience. They just learned as they went. So he settled in. He got married. He had a wife and a, and a daughter, and they were living there out by the at, near the lighthouse, and he was tending to the light. And he also had a side gig. Now, he was from Germany. So what do you think he might have had as a side gig? 
making beer. So he was he was home brewing at the lighthouse. And of course, uh, he was also friendly with a lot of the soldiers at Fort York. And so often they would all come over and, you know, they were being jovial and having um, gatherings and drinking beer. And, and there are rumors and speculation that he was a bootlegger and that he was selling beer to the soldiers as well. Uh, and everything seemed to be okay for the for the handful of years that he worked there until January of 1815. He was 52 years old at the time, and his body was found at the lighthouse, and he had been killed. Now, there are a couple different uh, s- uh, stories about this, and of course, a lot of it is local legend, and as you tell a legend, it gets bigger and better and more interesting. But the, the big truce, or the big story was that he was chopped up into little pieces, And his body was buried at various locations around the lighthouse. And they believe that he had actually sold uh, inferior beer, meaning he cut it with water to give it more volume, but to to reduce the potency of it. And the soldiers at the fort that he sold it to figured it out because it was January and it froze. So the alcohol content wasn't high enough, right? Well, they they paid good hard money for uh, for that beer and they weren't happy. So they went and killed him because of it. And then they chopped him up, tried to hide the body around the property of the lighthouse in order to not get caught. Now, two soldiers were arrested and put on trial. In fact, out of all the stories in the book, I think this is the only one where anybody was ever tried for a murder. But they were acquitted of all charges and let go. Now, as I was doing the research, um, I actually came across a young man who lives in Canada. His name was Eamon O'Keefe, and he had done a lot of the research for me and pointed me in the right direction with a lot of stuff. And there's this whole kind of a online discussion about, okay, well, let's think about the fact, if it really was true that two drunk soldiers had it within them to cut up a body and bury it around the property, could they really do that? First of all, it was January Think it's easy to dig graves in the Great Lakes region in January? Now, I visited this light, as I said, two weeks ago. It's very, very rocky. It's not an easy place to dig, to bury one giant body, let alone a bunch of little graves around the area. So it's uh, it's actually speculated that what really happened was that he was murdered, likely bludgeoned or whatnot, and his body just shoved off somewhere. He was probably not cut up and probably not even buried. But at the end of the day, again, no one was charged with um, with their de- with his death. This is Eamon O'Keefe. I had reached out right before the book went to the publisher last summer asking him for a photograph of himself to include in the book. And he goes, well, I'm in England right now. I'm getting my PhD. I think he's like 28. His P- And his PhD, and I can't remember, it's in the book. I have to look it up. But it's in some weird thing like the history of the drum and bugle corps or something. I don't know how you get a PhD in that. But he's like a history nerd. And he was just so helpful uh, in pulling this information together. No photograph of JP, but it was really just a big find to, to get that photo or uh, photos of his, his letter from uh, early on. Uh, South Bass Island was another one. We did get a chance to visit this. We went down in, um, in August of 2020 during the height of COVID. And I guess if you're going to go somewhere, you go to an island and there's lots of, you know, air and you're around water and it wasn't as populated. So it was okay. Uh, and we stayed there for about a week and did some research on the South Bass Island, uh, lighthouse, which is, uh, on the island and put in bay is like the little town on the north part of the island. 
I absolutely loved Put-In Bay. I would totally go back. So the lighthouse on this island, um, it sits on a two-acre parcel, and it was completed in 1897 for a mere $8,600. And it, it, as you can see, it sits up on a little bit of a cliff. Uh, it's actually a little, uh, the water level in this area is down a little bit. Um, so it was built here, and the first keeper uh, was a man by the name of Harry Riley. Now, Harry Riley um, came to this area from New York, and he started his career on the on the Great Lakes at, uh, as a man working on the lighthouse tender, the Hayes. And this Hayes uh, serviced and provided supplies for all of the lighthouses on Lake Erie. It was district number 10. And so he was part of the crew, and they would go around and make this rotation throughout the month, and and they would deliver oil, wicks, food, the library box, other things that all of the lighthouse keepers needed at the various lights in this region. And he did that for several years. Uh, it, was a, it was a dangerous job, much like lighthouse keeping was. Uh, this is a newspaper article about a shooting that took place on the Hayes during his years there. Um, there was a, a cook who got drunk and got mad at somebody on the ship and started shooting at him. And there was a, a newspaper account about it, and Harry um, was uh, referenced. He was the second mate of the ship. So after he had worked aboard the Hayes for several years, he comes in in 1897, and he is serving as the head keeper of the South Bass Island Lighthouse. And within a year, he is actually hired on a kind of an assistant keeper. It's not The guy's not officially hired by the Lighthouse Service, but he kind of is helping Harry out at the light. And his name is Sam Anderson. And Sam Anderson was a local Native American, uh, excuse me, a, a local African-American man. And he was living on the island um, and working with um, Harry Riley uh, to assist in the duties. What's really great about this lighthouse, when we got to do some research at the Ohio State University archives, they have all of the original letters from when Harry Riley was hired and how much he was getting paid and all of that stuff, which was really kind of cool to, to find. So Sam Anderson, in addition to helping Harry at the lighthouse, worked along with several of his friends at the Hotel Victory. And this hotel was huge, as you can see. It was very elaborate. It cost a lot of money to build. It was almost instantly put into bankruptcy because they spent so much money getting it open. Uh, it went through a lot of trials and tribulations, ended up getting resold. They had a fire there. There was just a lot of, of trouble that they had at this hotel. Well, within just a few weeks after Harry Riley got hired in, in 1898, in the fall of that year, there was a pandemic that hit this part of Ohio, and which is really interesting when we were actually living through a pandemic, there was a smallpox outbreak. And it hit this area of Ohio really hard, and it hit South Bass Island, uh, hit the Hotel Victory pretty bad, and they had about 30 uh, people that worked at the hotel, um, all African Americans, who died as a result of this outbreak. And Sam Anderson was just so afraid he was going to contract smallpox and die himself. And he tried to escape the island, but there was it was on lockdown, so obviously he was stopped, and he got sent back out to the lighthouse, where he lived with his pet snakes, I might add. 
And so he uh, he gets back out there and he is just stir crazy. He cannot settle down. And he uh, the last accounts of his whereabouts, he's kind of wandering around the yard at the lighthouse, screaming for his life, that he doesn't want to die. And the next morning, they found his body at the bottom of the cliff on the rocks. Now, they deemed it suicide. So it turns out he had worked there August 9th to August 30th of 1898. They deemed it a suicide. Now, why would a man who is screaming for his life, who did not want to die, commit suicide by jumping off onto the rocks, right? Was it an accident? Was it that he was drunk and he fell? Did Harry Riley just have enough of the screaming and push him over the edge? We'll never know. But they did deem it uh, as an official suicide. He got paid, uh, he had earned $17.25 for those three weeks that he put in, two and a half to three weeks that he put in. And that money was then used to pay the undertaker on the island to bury him. And we don't know exactly where he's buried, um, but they suspect that if you um, go to the main cemetery, the driveway that goes in goes over where the pauper cemetery used to be. And they suspect that he is somewhere in that general area. But there is no record of where where he uh, was at. Interestingly enough, within 24 hours, Harry Riley was arrested on the mainland in Sandusky, Ohio, because he had gone mad. Maybe he was so mad that he had knocked Harry, uh, Sam Anderson off onto the cliffs. We don't know. But he was arrested. Uh, he was... He was running around town telling everybody, come to the fairgrounds. I've got the fastest horse in town, and I, my horse is going to race your horse, and I will win because I have the fastest horse. He didn't own a horse. He was arrested and detained. They contacted his wife back on the island, and she said, basically, keep him. So clearly, she had been dealing with some of this craziness back home as well. So he ultimately um, uh, was sent to the Toledo State Hospital. And in there, he was determined to be hopelessly insane. Now, I actually connected with someone from the um, historical society that takes care of the cemeteries at the Toledo State Hospital, and she suspects that his insanity or the situation he was dealing with was ongoing. And likely the reason he left the tender, the Hayes, to work at the lighthouse, and likely the reason he hired Sam to help at the lighthouse was that he was losing it. And he knew that. And he needed someone else to kind of keep him in check. Well, so he gets sent to the asylum. Uh, it's sept early September of 1898. And he actually dies there in the hospital the following spring, about six months later. He would have lived in one of the men's wards there. So he passes away in, uh, on March 11th of 1899. And we don't know where he's buried either. His death records say that he was sent to uh, Holland, New York to be buried, but I could find no record of his body there. Couldn't find anything in that cemetery, in that city, in that county, or any county surrounding that county. And there's no record of a burial of, uh, for him out in one of the two cemeteries at the state hospital. So we really don't know uh, where he is at. 
In talking with the woman from the cemetery, the one who had told me that his progression came really fast, they did determine what, what caused, ultimately caused it. He had syphilis of the brain. The same thing that killed Al Capone, if you've ever seen the show, the movie Capone, where he basically just loses his mind at the end of the day, that's the same thing that happened to Harry Riley. He likely contracted it during his years on the ship when they were traveling from port to port, and that's what killed him. His wife actually ended up serving as uh, the interim keeper at the lighthouse for a brief period of time after his passing. Now, the third lighthouse keeper to die at this light, and I'm serious, if there's three, I'm not going to take a job out there, are you? This is Captain Dugan, and uh, he was there in later years, and he and actually some of his sons became um, lighthouse keepers here as well. But he came in and put in 17 years before he died falling off of the cliff onto the rocks, much like Sam Anderson. Now, this book doesn't have ghost stories in it, but there is speculation that Sam's ghost pushed him over the edge. And it's interesting because he had been there 17 years. He had walked that shore so many times. Why this one time would he slip and fall? Why would he not know and have his bearings? But it, it remains a mystery, and it was uh, deemed an accident. Uh, he is buried in the main cemetery, not far from the lighthouse. He's the only one of the keepers uh, in the book that we know where he's at, and several members of his family are buried in this area as well. The Hotel Victory is in ruins. It sits in a state park on the island, and if, you are a, if you're staying at the state park, you can go out and see the ruins. And the lighthouse itself, um, you can walk the grounds. They're open. It's in a park. You have to have special permission to go through the tower, um, but it's owned by Ohio State University and is believed to be the only lighthouse in the country owned by a public university. And it's great because they have all those archives and they let me go in and basically it's like you see on those shows on TV, they just set a giant box down of all these folders and you just go there and they let you take pictures of all of it now. And so I just literally sat there for hours and found tons of documents. Clapperton Island was one of the islands that I had never heard of. It's in the Manitou Islands in northern Lake Huron uh, in Canadian water. So here's our, um, our boundary line. And when I was starting to do research, I kind of put some feelers out uh, in historical and lighthouse groups online and said, hey, if you know of any stories from any of these lighthouses, please let me know. And uh, I was uh, quick to be provided information about Clapperton Island. And of the years that this island uh, lighthouse was in operation, it was built in 1866 and operated for just under 100 years. There were five keepers, five main keepers and Three of them were from the same family, a father, a son, and a grandson. And each one of them had an interesting death story that was tied to their service. We believe this here to be Benjamin Baker. He was the father, um, and he was the keeper um, from 1875. He was the second keeper, and he worked there for 19 years, and then he just disappeared. He had uh, been... In onto the mainland, he'd taken one of his boats, taken his dog, taken his bottle of whiskey and his wallet, gone to the mainland to play poker for the night. And when he came back, or when they thought he came back, his son, Henry, who was uh, out on the dock there, looks out and he sees his dad's boat and it's just kind of aimlessly floating around. The dog's in the boat 
but he doesn't see his dad. So he's like, oh my gosh, what's going on? So he gets in another boat and he goes out there and he finds that his dad's not laying down in the boat. There's a half bottle of whiskey in his dad's wallet with no money in it. So either he had a really bad night of poker or he perhaps he was robbed. In any case, they don't know whatever happened to Benjamin. Uh, they never saw him again. His body never surfaced. And at that point, uh, Henry steps into the role as the lighthouse keeper. And he actually served there for 45 years. So he put in um, a long tenure there. During his years, there was a very interesting um, incident that took place in the area. It was 1924, and a headless body was found near the lighthouse. And they were able to, to finally determine that the body belonged to a man by the name of Big Gus. And Henry knew Big Gus because he had been out to the lighthouse on occasion. And so he was actually brought in to identify the body. Apparently Big Gus was so big that even without his head, you knew who it was. So Henry identifies it as Big Gus. Turns out that Big Gus's wife and her son from a previous marriage had hogtied him backwards, chopped off his leg and head and threw him in the river. And then eventually he surfaced. They were charged uh, in his murder. Uh, several years later, um, there was uh, when Henry Baker actually died. He was no longer um, the active keeper at the lighthouse. He was there working with his son, William. So William was the third member of the family. But he would go out and help William every now and again. And how they had to hoist up, uh, they had to do some hoisting up at the tower. And when William was pulling that back, or Henry was pulling that back, uh, the rope snapped. And everything came crashing down on him and ended up hitting him in the shoulder and the side of the head. They took him to the hospital and it ended up, uh, he ended up dying from those injuries. It was a, it was a rough time for him. Uh, William himself stayed on at the lighthouse and he worked there from 1940 until 1962. And one of his assistant keepers was his brother, Earl. So four members, actually, of the family uh, worked at the light, three of them in the head keeper capacity. Now, Earl himself died in a really interesting way. This family was just cursed every which way. But uh, in 1947, Earl had been out um, with a friend hunting in the area, and the friend thought he was a deer and shot and killed him. So... That's now the third member of the family. So this would have also been Henry's son. Um, and then the final story, again, with William, uh, he was so dedicated to his service um, that even suffering from a massive appendicitis would not stop him from the job. He had been... Um, his appendix ruptured, but he worked at the light for three days not eating, and he would go he would go out there and tend to that light for three days in excruciating pain until one day they some people nearby noticed that the light wasn't shining, and they went to investigate and they found him laying on the ground right next to the tower and he finally had collapsed because of this appendicitis, so they took him to the hospital, he had surgery here's a picture of him from the paper. And, you know, a month later, he's back on the job. What a dedicated man. 
Now, this was one of the um, stories that I actually had found a reference on Facebook, and I was looking for this article or a, even a better picture of it. They ended up using this one in the book, but I put it into this, this Manitoulin Facebook group, and somebody goes, well, they have the article down at the local library. I'll run down there later this week and get a picture of it for you. So they ended up scanning it and sending it back to me so that I could put it in the program and then also in the book. Uh, this is the old sergeant. His name is William D. Marshall, and uh, he was not a lighthouse keeper himself, but 12 or maybe 13 members of his family all served at lighthouses in the Straits of Mackinac area. And he was actually a uh, soldier. He was uh, in the Army. And he was uh, active duty for 62 years. When he passed away in 1884 at the age of 83, he was the oldest enlisted man in the Army of the United States. Isn't that amazing? So you think about his level of, of dedication, his, his commitment to his country, uh, government job, a lighthouse keeper was a government job just like if you were a soldier. And so it, it's no surprise that it was such a, a big deal for his family members to go on and serve. So he and his wife, Fanny, had several children. Their son, William Anthony, was a lighthouse keeper. And William's son, James, was a keeper. He died in a, a boating accident when he was uh, going back and forth between his lighthouse in 1883. Their son Thomas was a keeper, and he also drowned. He was at uh, coming back from Mackinac Island to Waugashant Shoal Light when the boat capsized and he was lost at sea. Their son George Washington and his adopted son James were both keepers. Their son Walter and Walter's three children, Frank, Arthur, and Joe, were all keepers. Their daughter Sarah married a man by the name of William Barnum, and he was a keeper. And their youngest son, Charles, was a keeper. And Charles's son, Chester, went on to become a keeper. So I've got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. And I think there's another generation beyond that. All that served primarily in the, great, or in the uh, Straits of Mackinac area. Skilligalee was one of the ones that they served at a lot. Spectacle Reef, Boblo Island, Round Island. At one point, Waugashant Shoalite, which is in ruins now in the Straits of Mackinac, all three of the keepers there at one time were all brothers that worked there. Uh, George was at Waugashant's and Mackinac Point. Uh, James Merritt Marshall, he actually served uh, the furthest south of the family down in Muskegon. And Frank served the furthest north at a couple lights up in the Keweenaw Peninsula. So the family was just so ingrained into, into lighthouse keeping. But the one member of the family that, uh, I, that really drew me into this family story that I met first on paper, and then all of a sudden I did the family genealogy and found out all these others, literally by the time I got done doing this lighthouse chapter, I had this much paperwork because I was doing the genealogical research for every member of that family. Um, so St. Helena Island Lighthouse, which is located, if you're crossing the Mackinac Bridge heading north, um, St. Helena Island is the island you see off to the west. And if you look on a good clear day, you can see like this little matchstick of a white tower and that's St. Helena Island Lighthouse. 
We went out there to visit this light. They uh, do excursions out there through the Great Lakes Lighthouse Keepers Association. Uh, and so I think in the summer of 18 or 19, we went out there and we heard uh, about Charles Marshall and the situation that he got himself into when he was working there. Now, he worked uh, a total of 18 years as a lighthouse keeper, he worked at Wagashant's Shoal. He was one of the brothers there. And then he came out um, and he was working and living with his family at, at St. Helena. His wife, Rose, and their several children. And in August of 1900, he went, he rigged himself into a, a seat like this. This is not him, obviously. Um, but this is called a boatswain chair. They would use this um, kind of like if you've ever seen window washers going up and down skyscrapers. They would go up to the top of the tower, out the lantern room, and they would put this swing, rope swing, over the edge of the lantern room. And it had a set of pulleys, and he could move himself and shimmy himself up and down the tower so that he could paint the tower. One of the jobs of the lighthouse keeper, in addition to keeping the, the lens going, the light going, was obviously polishing the lens, polishing the glass, but painting the tower. And so on this August day, his wife had taken the kids to the mainland, and he thought, well, you know what? No one else is around to bother me. I might as well paint the tower by himself on the island. So he's into the job late morning. And all of a sudden, I don't know if it was wind or what happened, but one of the ropes got away from him and he was stranded there. He could no longer shimmy up and down. He couldn't get himself down to the ground. He couldn't get himself back up to the top of the tower. He's stranded there. Some ships are going by or boaters are going by and he's waving. And they're like, hey, hey, keeper, how you doing? And they just keep on going. And there are a couple different stories. One of them says that he was up there until after dark. Another one says that he actually somehow in trying to get himself free, flipped himself upside down. It was hanging there upside down. Either way, when nightfall came and they realized that the light was not shining because he hadn't turned it on, people went out to investigate. They found him hanging there. They got him down. And he was never the same. Clearly, if he was upside down and the blood is rushing to his head that whole time. So they, he gets treated and he does come back to work, but not to this light. They actually switch him out with a job. Uh, they send someone from Old Mackinac Point out to this light. And he is put to desk duty at the lighthouse in Mackinac City. And he works there for a couple of years, at least on paper, until he resigns. Um, but what had really happened at that point was he, he, he was getting worse. And so they sent him um, off to Traverse City to the Northern Michigan Asylum or the Traverse City State Hospital. And in 1910, he was listed um, as a resident of the, of the facility on the census. And in 1920, he was a patient and he actually died there in 19, I think 1926. And he is buried along with several members of his family at the cemetery in Mackinac City. 
Poverty Island Lighthouse. Um, so this is south of um, the Garden Peninsula, up in the Upper Peninsula. And then this is Door County, Wisconsin. And we'll get to this in a minute. But this is, the again, the state line. So it's interesting because they people from Poverty Island actually went to Door County to Washington Island pretty regularly because there was a, a population on Washington Island where there wasn't. Uh, and so instead of going up to the mainland of, of the UP, they ended up going into into Wisconsin more regularly. Poverty Island, I don't know exactly how it got its name, but uh, it's a 200-acre island, but it's interesting that most of the stories that resonate from this area have to do with massive wealth and fortune, yet the island is called Poverty Island. There are a lot of, of stories, a lot of legends about the fortune that is lost in, at the bottom of the lake in this area. One of them is um, about the, the Griffin. This is LaSalle's ship, the first ship to go through the Great Lakes region in the 1600s. And it was... Um, it had been over in the Green Bay area of Wisconsin, was loaded up with furs, cannons, and all kinds of other valuables. And it was going to head back through the Straits of Mackinac and then down toward Detroit but it disappeared. And this is, if you're into maritime mysteries, this is like treasure hunters and, and, and shipwreck aficionados. This is the coup d'etat. This is the, the one that they search for. My boyfriend thinks he knows exactly where it is, and if I just buy him a boat and all the equipment, he says he can find it him and a dozen others at least. So um, there are rumors that uh, the ship went down just south of Poverty Island. Over the years, there are all kinds of stories about treasure hunters that have been out there and that they have, you know, they've done sonar and they've done diving and that they have found these massive cannons and these trunks full of gold and that they are bringing them, you know, they rig them and they're bringing them up to the surface to their boat. And just as they get them to peek out of the top of the water, the chains or the rope break and they just go back down to the bottom. They will never be recovered. It is this, this pirate legacy that's out there with regard to the griffin. But it's not just the griffin. There are also stories that King James Strang, who led a Mormon population on Beaver Island, he was a self-proclaimed king. He wanted to be the head leader of the Mormons. He wanted to be Brigham Young, and so he established a colony on Beaver Island, and he stole regularly from those people who lived there. Well, except for his four wives, he didn't steal from them, but he stole from their families. And there was this, this legend that he had taken all of this stuff that he had stolen, all of these goods and all of this treasure that he had stolen from his parishioners. And Beaver Island has an archipelago with several other islands, but those were too close. He was afraid people would find them. So rumor was that he went up to Poverty Island and then he buried things in the beach area, but over time, as the sands shifted and the waters went up and down, all of it slipped down into the bottom of the lake, and that the treasure people are searching for is actually Strang's treasure. But that's not the only treasure. There's one more. But Napoleon Bonaparte, uh, during the Civil War, it was uh, advantageous for him to support the South. 
So he would send money over to help these southern soldiers. And instead of sending it through down across the ocean to southern states on the ocean, for some reason he thought, well, I'm going to send it through the Great Lakes and then it can go down the Mississippi River and get to them that way. I don't know what the reasoning, that doesn't seem very logical to me. Maybe he was trying to not be so obvious. But rumor has it that one of his ships worth $400 million was lost near Poverty Island, and that's what the buried treasure is in the waters off the base, right? So all of this gold and wealth and money and treasure off of an island called Poverty Island. It's kind of ironic, don't you think? So the lighthouse itself was, uh, was built in the 1875 and one of the keepers there had a near-death experience. His name was James McCormick. And I know James and his story because he had served, was one of the last keepers to serve at the Grand Traverse Lighthouse in Northport. And I've met his son once before many years ago. Well, he was out leaving the lighthouse one day in his, in his boat. And he had gotten just away from the dock when the boat caught fire. And he was, you know, having to figure out how to escape the boat, not drown, but also not burn to death. But he, he was able to, to narrowly escape that situation. And as I said, went on to become a lighthouse keeper for many years. In later years in the 1920s, um, William H. Lee was the assistant keeper. He worked there in the summer of 1923, and he was the assistant to a man by the name of Keeper um, Nels Jensen. And when they lived, when keepers lived on an island, um, especially this one because it was not populated, the family would only come and stay for short periods of time. Um, and so this particular summer, William was so excited because his wife and children were going to come spend some time with them out there. And he had gone down to the dock and he had helped them unload all of their trunks. And it's sitting there and he's getting ready to help carry all of that stuff up to the lighthouse. And he excuses himself, says, I'm not really feeling very well, just I'll be right back. And he goes up to the lighthouse and he doesn't return. So Keeper Jensen goes in eventually to check on him and he knocks on the bathroom door and no one answers and he tries to open it and it's locked. So he has to go around outside and he gets a ladder and he looks in the window and he sees... Lee passed out on the floor of the bathroom. So somehow he ends up getting in the bathroom and it turns out Lee had a heart attack and he died at that, at that moment. And sadly, another one of the assistant keepers who was um, relatively new to the job was given the task of taking the body uh, to Washington Island for burial the next day. Well, he didn't really know the and how to navigate the islands and he got lost almost lost the guy before he made it to his final resting spot. Now, Keeper Nels Jensen, he had his own situation that happened years later in 1936. He had gone with an assistant keeper um, by boat down to Washington Island, and they were walking along a road, and a driver came by and careened through both of them. And Nelson, uh, Nelson Jensen was killed. Um, the other guy was injured, did not die. They never ended up charging the guy with hit and run or any kind of incident. They just called it an accident. And sadly, um, you know, that was 
the end of the keepers there at the lighthouse. The Sandpoint Lighthouse, this is one that is one of the stories that I've known for quite a few years. Um, and this is in Escanaba. This lighthouse was um, built uh, in 1868. And uh, the first keeper there was a man by the name of John Terry. And John actually died before the light was complete. So he was, even though he was appointed, he never actually served as the keeper. And so uh, it was very common for the wives of these keepers to be appointed in their place upon their death. And so his wife, Mary Terry, uh, was then instated in 1868. And when the light went into service that May, she became the first lighthouse keeper. And she uh, worked there for 18 years, never had an assistant keeper. If there were things she couldn't do, she hired somebody in town to come take care of it. But she was a one-woman operation. Um, she was very frugal. She saved her money. She probably made about $300 to $400 a year as a lighthouse keeper, not a lot of money, but she also didn't spend it. And so uh, she was able to spend it frivolously. Uh, she was able to actually purchase several pieces of property and houses in town. And so she was a, a property owner there. And everything seemed to be going pretty well until March of 1886 when there was a fire at the lighthouse. Uh, I did some research to find out from the National Weather Service what weather conditions were like that time. And while there was snow on the ground, it wasn't any big blizzard. Um, the Volunteer Fire Department was not far away. But the fire was so strong that they really struggled to get it put out. And when they did finally um, have it extinguished, they expected to find Mary's body in her bedroom because the fire happened in the middle of the night. Well, they didn't. They found what was left of her in the basement. And what they suspect was that someone actually broke into the lighthouse that night with the intent to rob her. She heard it, came downstairs in the middle of the night, confronted the intruder. There was a struggle and she was killed. And then they started the fire right next to her body to consume her and make it look like she died accidentally. There were so many newspaper accounts. This made, made newspapers in California. And they say robbery and murder were a possible cause. Uh, there was speculation that there was a faulty furnace as well. But the main part of the fire was not at the back where the furnace was. It was near that lower level door. And one of the other things that they found was that the door to that lower level, it wasn't just burned off. It was the hinges were ripped off of like someone had kicked it in. So even after they extinguished the fire and the door was damaged, you can still tell the hinges when they're ripped and bent as they were forcefully opening that door. All right, Pilot Island. So now we have kind of jumped over in officially to uh, Wisconsin and into Door County. Uh, Pilot Island Lighthouse um, was another one that I was quite fascinated with and actually got a chance to go take a tour. Um, there are 10 lighthouses in Door County. Some of them are still active. Some of them are out um, on islands and you can uh, there are several excursions that you can take to go out there, and that's what we did Memorial Day weekend of last year. Um, and so we went um, to do some research about the Pilot Island Lighthouse. This lighthouse uh, was built uh, of Milwaukee brick. 
Uh, and in 1876, uh, there was a gentleman by the name of, of, of John Boyce who was hired in as the second assistant keeper. And he worked for a keeper by the name of Tobias Davison. And they called him Brother Boyce. He, he was actually from Canada, from like uh, uh, Kingston over by Toronto area but eventually made his way to Door County. And he had he had been there for several years, uh, had made a lot of friends, so they called him Brother Boyce. Unlike Sam Anderson, he had uh, more tamer animals with rabbits. There was this one newspaper article that I found, which was quite long, and it talks about this one particular winter where he and another guy had tried to go from one island to another, in, and it was still kind of winter, and the ice while they were in route where, where, where it had blown out by the time they were headed in, it was blowing in. And so they were kind of, um, ice locked in and they were also transporting with them in this boat, um, some supplies, I think some chickens and a horse. There was something about a horse. And so they, you know, they had to try to save themselves and the horse. And he was, able to get the horse out and I guess they kind of um iceberg hopped to safety and there was this huge harrowing article about the situation and I wonder if that was kind of his resume like this guy can solve problems he can get himself out of a jam he knows how to manage things he seems like he'd be a good assistant lighthouse keeper so uh, he is hired in, and he's not there for very long. And this lighthouse, like many of them, was very remote. There was no other people on this island except uh, except for the people with the lighthouse. It was desolate. It was kind of lonely. And he became quite depressed. Uh, he had he had had his heart broken recently, and not long after he recorded his name in the census. He was found laying dead on the backside of the lighthouse, and he had slit his throat. And this is a letter from, uh, the, or the log entry from the lighthouse keeper um, about that situation. And he was ultimately buried in the Washington Island Cemetery. Um, I believe the same cemetery where William Lee is buried. There's a, an interesting book written by the next, uh, one of the next lighthouse keepers. His name is uh, Knutson. And it talks significantly about this situation um, with Boyce in this book because he had run into Boyce on the mainland or on one of the other islands uh, in the days before his death and indicated that there might be a job opening soon. Well, then Boyce had talked to the local butcher a day or so before his death, death, asking specifically where the jugular was and how deep someone would have to cut in order to sever it. Now, today we'd be looking for these red flags, but back then they didn't. And had they noticed it, they probably would have picked up on some of these situations. Ironically, Newton was the justice of the peace, and he was called out to investigate the death. And um, and they determined, obviously, that it was uh, a suicide. And he later became appointed the keeper and served at several lights in this area. Uh, we took a, a boat tour um, out of the tip of um, the peninsula out past or out to this island 
And let me tell you, we were glad there was a mask mandate because it's abandoned and it is now a home for migrating birds who eat a lot of fish. So between the dead fish smell and the bird poop smell, it was rancid. It was so disgusting. Uh, I would have liked to have three or four masks that day. We got around the backside of the island. It wasn't so bad. It looks like a scene from um, Hitchcock when you go out there. And it would have been in this back area here, there would have been a sidewalk, and that was where Boyce uh, committed suicide. Uh, through this, um, you also get a chance to go to nearby Plum Island, and you can walk around there a little bit. And these two islands are part of a nature um, U.S. wildlife preserve that's out in this area. All right, now we're going to head down uh, real quick to uh, southwest Michigan because we're going to wrap up on um, Lake Michigan. And uh, this is George Sheridan. And he was the son of a lighthouse keeper. So this is George here. His mom and dad, Aaron and Julia, were lighthouse keepers on South Manitou Island. And they died in a tragic shipwreck in 1878. They, uh, their boat capsized. And Aaron, who had the use of only one arm, this one was damaged as when he was in the Civil War. And the two of them, along with their nine-month-old son, Robert, were lost at sea that day. And George was so... Um, stricken with grief over their loss. And their story is actually in Michigan's Haunted Lighthouses. This is the only family story that crosses over into both books. George went on to become a lighthouse keeper to pay tribute to his parents and served at several lights in Southern Lake Michigan, uh, including the Kalamazoo River Light in Saugatuck. He was the only officially trained lighthouse keeper here, and he worked here until 1914 when the light was decommissioned. And at that point, he was getting ready to get uh, transferred to another lighthouse, and he, he, he snapped. And he actually committed himself to the Kalamazoo State Hospital for his depression. And he let his wife, Sarah, stay on in Saugatuck, and she kind of did all of the, the final paperwork to close up that lighthouse. And he's there. Well, he's still at the asylum on the day he's supposed to start his next job. In this time period, so 1914, there weren't services available to lighthouse keepers or any government employee in, in that regard. Um, there was no pension, no disability, no sick days, no unemployment, no nothing. If you didn't do your job, and this was a very vital job. It wasn't like you just couldn't light the light for three days. If you couldn't do it, someone had to do it. So he's given this new job, and he doesn't show up. There's no do-overs. He loses that job. And so here we have a, a, a mentally unstable, depressed man who's now just found out he lost his job, and now it's going to be a mark on his record, and it may impact him getting other jobs. He also hears from his wife, Sarah, that, you know what? No matter where you go, we're going to stay in Stogatuck, the kids and I. So there's another blow. He's just getting knocked further into this hole. So he ends up um, going to visit his uncle, who was the keeper of the Gross Point Light in Evanston, Illinois. His mom's family was from the Chicago area. 
And he actually goes into another asylum near Chicago for added treatment. Not exactly sure how long he's there, but apparently he is released as a cured man. And within 48 hours, he hung himself at the boathouse, at the layhouse. Clearly not cured. Uh, that, that, all of that stuff, all starting back, he was about 13 or 14 when his mom and dad died. And it just was something he was never able to come to terms with. So he's buried at the Mount Hope Cemetery in Chicago. Uh, his wife stayed on in Saugatuck, and there are several members of that family still in the Saugatuck area. In fact, I know several of them. Grand Island area lighthouses. This is another one um, that really jumped out at me early on. Uh, there's a book specifically about the murders here that really drew me in. Uh, so if you've ever been to Munising, um, you um, can take a ferry boat ride uh, just a short little five-minute ride out to Grand Island, and they have camping and hiking. They occasionally will do uh, historic tours uh, in that area. So Grand Island has the North Lighthouse, which is currently privately owned. Then most people are familiar with the uh, Channel Light, which is this um, wood-sided lighthouse. You see a lot of photographs of that out online. Then there's the lighthouse. This is a range light in Munising. There's another one that sits back on a bluff uh, a few blocks away. And then the Osaba Light up the road. And there's a there's a interesting story that comes from the North Lighthouse here. Uh, so the Grand Island North Lighthouse, this island is actually um, just under 14,000 acres. And the lighthouse, the first one was built here for $5,000 in 1856. And then eventually in 1867, they built this brick lighthouse for $17,000. And one of the noted keepers there uh, was a man by the name of George Jenry. Now, um, I'm going to go back. It's a little harder to see, but you see how high up on the cliff this is? So you can't really get to the island, and it's on the north end of the island. It's like eight miles to walk from that shortest ferry part. So what they did was they, where the boathouse was, and you could see the water levels obviously really low, but the boathouse, they had a step, and then they actually built this tram system that went up the side of the cliff so that they could easily get back and forth because it was easier than having to walk eight miles one way to the south end of the island. And so this was how George Jenry and his assistant keepers, you know, would come down here and leave in their boat and come back and bring their, their stuff in and out. Uh, George Jenry worked there from 1893 till 1908 when he disappeared. Uh, here we have him with his family. They actually had a home in town, which is still standing. So uh, 1908, George is living at the lighthouse. His assistant keeper is a man by the name of Edward Morrison. And Edward Morrison got hired in May of that year. And he was on the job for only about three weeks before he disappeared. Now, there's a lot of speculation on what happened. But one of the theories is that William Mather here had something to do with their deaths or their disappearances. William Mather was president of the Cleveland Cliffs Mine in the area. And he had acquired most of the land on Grand Island and he wanted that land where the lighthouse was, but the government wouldn't sell it to him. So he was pretty upset about that. But he had built this um, game preserve. And this photo was taken when we went out there uh, two summers ago. So some of it is still standing. I have this, I always have this Jurassic Park flash when I see those walls. But he brought in all these exotic animals and he would invite all of his friends out and they would hunt these 
these wild game and he he was a big shot. He he wanted to be um, this to be comparable to the Huron Mountain Club, if you've ever heard of that private club that existed up near Marquette, a club so exclusive that Henry Ford was denied membership at the onset because he's new money and they were old money. So William Mather had a beef, a couple beefs with George Jenry. One, even though he had no control over selling the land, he was mad that he was out there because he wanted the land. But also, George Jenry didn't like William Mather. And when animals would escape from the preserve and they would wander out to the lighthouse, Jenry would kill them and eat them. And that just made him more mad. So there's speculation and there were stories that William Mather maybe put out a hit on these two keepers, thinking that if the keepers were gone, that maybe they would decommission the light and then he could ultimately eventually own the land. We don't know for sure if that is actual or not. But what we do know, or what the, the, base, the general uh, consensus is, was in uh, June, early June of 1908, George Jenry had taken, gone down the tram, taken one of his boats, and gone to Munising to get their paychecks for the day and to pick up supplies. And while he was there, he was seen walking around town taking swigs out of a bottle of whiskey, which was not uncommon for him, even at 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning. So the last he has seen, he is in his boat, and he is going back to the lighthouse. And later, a day or two later, they all of a sudden realize that the light has been dark. When was the last time anybody saw the light? So they go out to investigate and they come into that area and they have usually two or three boats. Well, there's only one there. Where are the other boats? They find here on the dock all of the supplies that George Jenry had bought in town that day just stacked up. There's a wheelbarrow nearby. So clearly Morrison came down with the wheelbarrow to help him get all the supplies to get it back up to the lighthouse. They walk in the boathouse and George Jenry's jacket is hanging in there. But where are they? They go up to the house. And Morrison's um, vest, his keeper vest, is draped over the kitchen chair. On the table are documents. Looks like he's been studying. He's never been a lighthouse keeper before, so he's probably brushing up on the job. Pot of stew on the stove. Men are nowhere to be found. So they send out somebody to take care of the light for a while, and they start to investigate. Where did they go? Did they maybe go out to retrieve fishing nets? And maybe George, who was drunk earlier, got into a scuffle. He was known to not get along with his assistant keepers. Maybe they got into a fight out there and they fell over. Or maybe he killed Morrison and took off. They don't know. Between, it, it, over the next uh, couple of weeks, Morrison's wife gets a letter. Don't be surprised if I end up dead. So there's all this speculation. What happened? And nobody really knew who um, Morrison was because he'd been on the job for three weeks. Nobody, he hadn't gone into town yet. Nobody really knew. He, they just knew there was a new assistant keeper. So a couple weeks later, when a body shows up in a boat, somebody reports it to the Asaba Lighthouse. Their keeper comes out, goes out and checks the boat, and they find this body, bludgeoned. Don't know who it is. Take him into town. And they find out that this body has 13 star tattoo on his arm. 
And they determined that it was Morrison because he is a Navy man. So for the first few articles that show up in the paper, so this is like the type of boat they would have been using out there, they just say a body, a keeper's body. They don't even know who he is at this first point. A couple days later, this one, keeper's wife not worried. That's Jenry's wife. That's led to a lot of speculation that maybe he killed Morrison, came back home, got his stuff, told his wife not to say anything, and took off. Maybe to Canada. His wife's not worried. And there are, I, I think I have probably 50 articles all about this whole situation. Well, eventually, another body surfaces. Uh, about a month later, they find a body on the beach closer to the Asabo lighthouse. And a man's out there looking for blueberries, and he stumbles on a decomposed body. And this body uh, has a keeper's vest on it. And in the pockets, they able to pull these papers out, and they determine that the body is that of George Jenry. Well, unless somebody put that vest on somebody else and Jenry took off, who knows, right? There's just all of this speculation. They ultimately determine that Ed Morrison died from exposure. They did two investigations because they thought he had been beaten, and they said, well, no, really... The bruising was from his body just rolling around in the boat. But how did he die in the first place? He was a Navy man. He was a skilled sailor. He could have handled a boat in, in the Lake Superior unless he was incapacitated. And they consider the cause of death for George Jenry accidental drowning. And they leave it at that. But most people believe something a little bit more sinister was taking place. Morrison is buried in Flint and uh, where his wife was living at the time of his death, George Jenry and the rest of his family buried in Unising. Death of the Lighthouse was written by Lauren Graham, who actually owns that lighthouse today, and you can find both of these books have more information about uh, this case. This is the Pie Island Lighthouse. These next few are ones that were all new to me. I had never um, been to this part of Canada and was not familiar at all, but I was really fascinated to learn some of the stories. So Pie Island Lighthouse only had five men that tended to the light during its brief period. its I don't even know why they built it. It's so minuscule. Why is it not up there? I mean, it cost 300 bucks to build it, which is no surprise, right? 23 feet tall. And Thomas Hamilton um, was... Uh, one of the early keepers at this lighthouse, uh, he was a uh, single man, and um, he, uh, in May of 1906, he was found dead uh, of a hemorrhage. They don't know what caused the hemorrhage, but he had been dead in the lighthouse for 10 days when they found him. Not exactly sure what the situation was. Um, there uh, was another story um, about a man named Forbes, and it's interesting when you go back, all historical data is not accurate. If you've ever done genealogical research, you know this. So one article says his name was James Forbes, one article called him Robert Forbes, but his death certificate says John Forbes. So I don't know what his real name was, but I went with John because I figured the death record is probably the most accurate, right? So uh, in October of 1911, at the age of 75, his son went out to the lighthouse and found him collapsed 
on the floor. And it turns out that he had been robbed of the wood alcohol that they used to clean the lens by two Native Americans who were going to drink it. Apparently, they had been with the keeper in the past, and he would water it down a little bit so that they could get the alcohol effect, but not the poisoning effect. And so his son, his stepson finds him, and he takes him to the McKellar Hospital, where he later dies. So they know who these two Native Americans are, and they go after these guys, but it turns out the wood alcohol got to them first. And they didn't cut it down at all, drank it solid, and it ended up killing both of them. So I guess there was some level of, of justice in that case. Uh, the St. Ignace Island in Lake Superior is um, this kind of navy bean-shaped island here. This map is from the 1600s, and it was actually drawn by Father Marquette. And to get permission to put this in the book was pretty exciting. And we'll you see this one in, in uh, I think, the next two lights. So St. Ignace Island is here. And we're going to actually look at Talbot Island, which is so small that it doesn't show up on this map. But it's way down here. It's like smaller than that dot on this map. Tiny little Talbot Island. And there's not a lot of information about Talbot Island, but we do know that um, the local Native Americans thought that the island was possessed. They did. They said it was bad energy there. They kept telling people not to build a lighthouse there. No one should live there, but nobody listened. And so they ended up um, building this small lighthouse out on Talbot Island, and they had three keepers that died during the harsh winters on the island. One of them uh, was named William Perry, and he set out on a boat at the uh, onset of the winter and was lost at sea. Um, and they later found his, bo his boat and his body kind of in this channel. Um, but the most noted keeper out of this area was a man by the name of Ta Thomas Lamphere. And he decided he was going to stay at the lighthouse this winter with his young wife. She was, I believe, a Native American woman. She was said to be absolutely stunning. And within a week or two after the winter set in, of course, they can't get any supplies at this point. He dies, not sure why or how, and here this wife is, and she's trying to figure out how am I going to survive the next three, four, five months out on this island at this lighthouse, and what am I going to do with my husband's body? So she finally thinks, I'm going to take the sail from our sailboat. She wraps his body in it and drags it out and puts it into this crevice in the backyard, into this like rocky area of the backyard. And she, she shoves it in there and kind of barricades it so animals can't get to it. And then she sits in that lighthouse for months and waits for spring to arrive. And when spring finally gets there, she starts to see boaters coming by and she flags down a couple men and she gets them to the island and they say she at this point looked like she had aged 50 years in just that short period of time. She was, uh, she had been almost out of food, just, just looking bad. And she explained to them what she had to do with her husband's body. And they said, we'll take care of it. And they went and they got him out, properly prepared him and buried him on nearby Bowman Island. And his grave is still there today. In fact, um, some tour guides that I connected with went out and took this photo for me um, last summer just to be in the book. 
it was really a, um, a rough thing to be on these remote islands. And uh, if, if, if winter came in and it got rough, you were in a lot of trouble. So uh, this is Mishapakotan Island. This is another one that I had never heard of. And I have to phonetically write it out so I know how to say it. Mishapakotan. Uh, this one also shows up on that Father Marquette map, which is kind of interesting. And uh, this is another island where um, the Ojibwa Indians refused to even go on the island. And they kept telling early missionaries to stay away from this space. But they ended up building a lighthouse here in 1911. And the first keeper here actually defied death a couple of times. He and his family decided that they were going to stay out there one winter. And it was a pretty big deal for keepers to stay on uninhabited islands during the winter. And so it made the newspaper. He was one of two keepers in the area decided to, to toughen it out because you had to stockpile food and supplies there was no ship coming, so you had to really be committed to this. And they said in 1913 he did this because he was too cheap to pay rent on a house down uh, in Sault Ste. Marie. He was very frugal, and he says, you know what, we'll be better off just stay there. We'll save the money and stay all winter. Well, apparently it worked out okay for them. But in 1916, it was a little different story. He's like, well, okay, maybe I'll pay the money. We'll go to Sault Ste. Marie uh, we'll ride it out. And so they end up um, in, uh, he goes in with his son, James, and they load up the boat um, probably in uh, December and late December. And they're going to go down to, to, to Sault Ste. Marie to, uh, to stay. Well, it takes them like a week and a half to get there. And they thought for sure that they had died, but finally they show up almost frozen to death partial um, hypothermia. Things are looking really bad for them. Well, you think they'd learn by this point, right? Maybe to get going a little sooner in the year. But in 1918, actually 1917 in December, he and his son set out again in December, but this time, third time, they don't make it and their bodies are never recovered. Uh, at that point, uh, his wife, Minnie, is appointed as the uh, lighthouse keeper. She serves there for a couple of years before she ultimately retires from service. And that is the Mishabakotan Lighthouse as it stands today. So with that, I'm going to wrap it up. Thank you for letting me share the stories. Straight from the Author has been brought to you by My Warn. To hear more podcasts like this, visit mywarn.org. Again, that's miwarn.org.